Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and you need to gird your loins, folks, because this week's book bites. Our guest is Gretchen Felker-Martin, author of what may be the most buzzed-about horror novel of the year so far, Manhunt. If you've got even a passing interest in horror, then you've probably heard of the book or seen its wince-inducing cover. If you haven't, all you need to know is that it follows a pair of trans women in the aftermath of a brutal pandemic whose survival depends on the killing of mutant men and the eating of their testicles. Right? You're awake now, aren't you? (laughs) On the off chance that you're wearing really loud headphones and you're sitting next to some old lady on the bus, I'm going to say it again. They eat the testicles! As pulpy as that sounds, no pun intended, Manhunt is actually a very deep piece of work. As you'll hear in the following conversation, Gretchen takes a lot of rage, a lot of pain, and a lot of sadness, and carves it into the page. We talk about trans rights and turfs, about soft genocide and victimhood, about the apocalypse of sandbox, and about the importance of empathy, even in the hardest places. Manhunt is no simple polemic, and this conversation offers great insight into the potential paradoxes, controversies, and complexities of Gretchen's novel. It's a book that's primed for great conversation, though it is a conversation with many possible pitfalls, and I was nervous going in, especially as Gretchen has made quite the name for herself as a formidable pull-no-punches person, and I'm glad to say she was especially gracious to me. So without further ado... Off we go to a bitter near future of viruses and violence, where the worst monsters still wear human clothing. Let's talk scared. Well, hi Gretchen. Massive welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Well, no, thank you for coming on the show. Um, I didn't give you that much notice. This is the behind-the-scenes stuff that my listeners don't normally know. I'd already built the schedule for the spring, but then I kind of got got wind of Manhunt, and and several people actually wrote to me saying, you have to interview Gretchen. And I was like, right, okay, I need to interview Gretchen. So, uh, yeah, so it's been a, a pretty quick turnaround, so thanks for making yourself available. My pleasure. That said... I haven't been this nervous about my own role in an interview for quite a while. Um, <laughs> I, I am a cis, straight, white man from the UK, so I don't think it's really possible to find anyone less equipped to offer an informed commentary on the topics that your book confronts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll muddle through. Well, this is this is basically the chances of me saying something utterly fucking stupid have never been quite this high. But But, you know... In true, with, with true white, cis, straight, male belligerence, that hasn't stopped me before anyway. So it, it helps that I have loved the hell out of this book. I mean, Manhunt is easily the most provocative, audacious horror novel I've read since I started recording this show, which is saying a lot because I talk about horror every week. You know, there's so much to say about this book and to ask about it. But as ever, we need to kind of start with an intro that will, will get unaware listeners up to speed. So Over to you. Can you introduce us to your story? Yeah, absolutely. So Manhunt is the story of a world that has been ravaged by a virus that transforms anyone with enough testosterone in their system into a ravenous, cannibalistic rapist, just a a mindless monster. Um, 
And it follows a pair of trans women who hunt these devolved men and harvest estrogen from their testicles for their own use and to trade with others. And they're called Manhunters. And that's that's sort of the jumping off point for a larger story. But that's that's the essential conceit of the book. So in, in the first few pages of this book, I think I wrote this on social media, we, we get straight into the testicle eating. Uh, <laughs> and then you use the phrase, lick my taint quite early on. And I was like, okay, this is the book for me. I, I, I like this. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it goes to quite some places and, and we, we'll allude to a lot of it without spoiling it. But essentially, Manhunt is a post-apocalyptic story or perhaps a dystopian story and kind of take your pick. I suppose that, genre has a rich heritage as a kind of playground for metaphor and allegory especially around social political issues and increasingly gender issues where did you first get the idea to use a post-pandemic world as a stage to examine and explore the the trans experience well first of all i had the idea uh, about six months before the pandemic happened. Um, <laughs> okay. Which was a pretty bizarre experience. But what really started me working on it was revisiting the Screwfly Solution by Alice Sheldon, mm-hmm. um, who usually wrote under the pen name James Chip- Tiptree. And the Screwfly Solution is about every man on the planet suddenly going insane and and wanting to rape and kill the women around women around them. Um, And it's rooted in this sort of very white bread, middle-class heterosexual dynamic, you know, as, as, as I've said in other places, that's not to knock the story at all. It's incredible. And it's very, very insightful about those things. And it's looking there with purpose, not by default. Um, But as a friend of mine was reading it to me. I kept thinking like, wow, there's a million stories that no one has ever thought about or sketched out buried inside this conceit. You know, what is happening to all the people who don't live in the suburbs, all the people who don't fit these molds. Mm -hmm. And that was so compelling to me. I kept thinking like, well, I could, I could do something with that. I could play around in that space. I'm glad you brought up the screw fly solution because I read that years ago and I only rem- remembered the story when I read an interview with you where you mentioned, it. I was like, Oh God. Yeah. I, I'd forgotten all about it. But that got me thinking that as you've kind of just said, the, the post-apocalypse is generally, I say it's a playground. It's a very binary playground, isn't it? You know, you get fascists versus communal living. You get good versus evil, male versus female, mother Abigail versus Randall Flagg, you know? Yes. And it, 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 it does seem that Manhunt, in, in contrast, is determined to complicate that easy tribalism. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, part of what was so important to me when I was writing this book was making sure that everyone in it, even people who I think are are pretty uncomplicatedly horrible in terms of real world politics was portrayed as complex and full an entire human being. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually, I suppose, the disease itself that complicates that tribalism. 
because the disease itself re reduces people to their physicality. It makes the hormonal balance, I suppose, the most the most crucial part of, of who they are in some ways, rather than their thoughts or their attitudes. So right. this disease kind of breaks people down to their most fundamental parts, which you think would make it a very simple male versus female story. But of course, it does quite the opposite. It makes it a much more complex story than that. Right. I mean, first you have most men removed from the equation, but of course there are still trans men. There are still men who have hormonal irregularities. Um, and on the, the flip side, there are many women who produce enough testosterone to be hosts for the virus, including trans women when we're unmedicated, which is an enormous source of anxiety and, and sort of existential threat. And in a lot of ways, I meant the plague to be sort of a turf fever dream. You know, it's it's what if the world that these women are always screaming about actually happened? What if it turned out that having testosterone in your system really did make you a monster? On the off chance that I've got people listening who don't understand what the term turf means, can you just elaborate on that a little bit for us? Sure, absolutely. In its original form, TERF is an acronym for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. And over the years, it has become an umbrella term for anyone who kind of makes the primary axis of their political life oppression of trans people, especially trans women, um, many of whom are, are no longer radical feminists. And indeed, even at the inception of the movement, there was a large right wing involvement, which you would you would be hard pressed to find a way to describe as feminist in any way. <laughs> and uh, now, of course, there's a large sort of suburban mother cohort there's a large evangelist religious cohort and the rabid right-wing element of the movement has has grown tremendously i would say that it, if anything it's a much less feminist movement than it used to be and it it didn't start out in a particularly good place <laughs> well i mean that that is interesting actually and the turfs in this story are some of the most interesting, if abhorrent, characters. Um, to frame this then, I, I mentioned a few questions ago that, you know, you create a very complex society in this apocalypse. Um, that complexity aside for a second, to, to look at this in its most basic level, the novel has kind of three camps. There are the infected men, there are the turf militia, and then there's this kind of loose collaboration of, you know, decent people i suppose which includes our trans protagonists uh they're the kind of the, the, the three different pieces on the board so i think the best way is to proceed through so let's talk about the men first of all because i think they are slightly just slightly less interesting than the uh than the turfs um <laughs> the, the disease you subject them to is horrendous it, it, it quite literally transforms them into monsters like their skin splits it's it's horrible um and the things they do, I mean, they are frightening because they're basically rape zombies. Yeah. I got the sense throughout, and I'm, re I'm really curious what you think about this. I got the sense that there was some sympathy still to be mined or to be found for these male monsters. And then I sat back and thought, do I just think that because I'm a man? <laughs> no, I, I did have sympathy for them while writing them. Um they have lost, I mean, 
there's certainly a large contingent in sort of radical gender studies and, and adjacent circles who are very into bagging on men and saying that everything is men's fault. And of course, we live in a world defined by patriarchy and its incredibly destructive impact on both world politics and the state of the world and individual relationships and the very fabric of society as it's as it's permitted to exist, the nuclear family and things like that. But men are not inherently evil. And and that's that's a big part of why I chose this this bizarre viral metaphor. There's nothing inherently bad or wrong about being a man. I was raised in part by men who loved me and who I loved and admired and looked up to. And I still have men like that in my life. And I always will. I think that achieving solidarity and love with the men around you does sometimes entail the pain of, of having to educate them. But that's even that is not universally true. Some men are, are very wise and thoughtful and caring. And thinking about the loss of all that into this monolith of rapist monstrosities is so profoundly sad to me. Suddenly, all the laziest gender critiques have become true by default. There's a lot of, um, I can't suppose, metaphor by which the, the, the impact of the disease and the impact of the change in society after the disease kind of literalize as you just said, gender stereotypes, they, they take right. those, those lazy things we all think and they, they make them literal. Um, mm-hmm. And that's both satirical and really sad and horrible at the same time. That's certainly how I intended it. <laughs> Good, because it works. I mean, one of the kind of underlying implications, one of the most horrifying implications, actually, is that this new world may be exactly what men really want deep down to be kind of let off the chain and to be rendered irresponsible for the urge to hurt and kill and rape. And I wondered, well, is that satire on your part or is it something that is addressing something much darker and, 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 and deeper that you see a- amongst us? Well, I've, I've certainly met many men who would greatly enjoy never being held responsible for the things that they do to the people around them. And so when when Fran, I think it's Fran, it might be Beth, has that thought, it's just me reflecting on that. You know, I don't think that all men are like that. I don't think it's sort of like a united political goal that they have. Mm-hmm. But I think it is what happens when powerful men become uncomfortable. They start to create world norms and situations in which they are allowed to do as they please and doing as they please typically involves hurting other people yeah that that's kind of like a grand political way of looking at it i it made me think of something much more brutal which is is something i've kind of mused on and, and sort of said for years actually i don't know if you're aware of the serial killer fred west from the uk yeah. so i was listening to a podcast all about him years ago um in which I, I mean, it's horrible stuff this i don't want to dwell on it too much but basically he was abusing his own daughters and he worked in a, in a slaughterhouse um and he he used to bring colleagues home to participate in the abuse of his daughter and it 
it made me think like, how the hell do you even have that come? I mean, how the hell do you find somebody, you know, that will do that? And in, in such a small sample of, 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 of men, how do you find more than one? How do you find a handful of, of men that will come home and do that? And it got me thinking like, how many people are there around us where if you take the rules away and you say, you know, you won't get caught, how many people are actually dangerous in that way? How many people are, are only held back by the potential consequence? Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. This book made me think about that very strongly. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly an astute situation to connect it to. I recall learning about that, I think, it, uh, about a year ago. And it is horrifying. And of course, the implication is that those people are everywhere all around us. Yeah. And I uh, I mean, right now, there are probably people switching this podcast off, just rolling their eyes, thinking I'm some kind of mad woke misandrist. And, and I'm not at all <laughs> like you say. I just think that the, the guys who say not all men are probably the men you need to worry about <laughs> because because the rest of us know that it's not all men. <laughs> A lot of the violence done by men, and actually probably just as much that's done to the men in this book, is very gruesome. And it's kind of unapologetically so. I mean, the fact that you've got people eating testicles feels like you're taking a stance quite early on. (laughs) And I'm sure you've been asked this before, but when you actually ended up going the trad publishing route with this, were there any worries raised about just how extreme this book is? You know, I was very, very fortunate to be hooked up with a really interested and engaged editor at Tor Nightfire, um, Kelly O'Connor Lonesome, who was so incredible to work with. And she had only one qualm about the entire book, which was a scene of forced impregnation. And I ended up replacing it with something a lot more horrible that we both liked more. Um, so I, I was very fortunate. I did not have to work with anyone who wanted me to tone the book down. Um, and it's, it's easy to say this now from the position of, of having already sold it and attained a little bit of, of visibility and success, but I just don't think that I would have been able to go forward if someone had wanted to defang the book. That was my next question. Because I I don't see how this would have worked. I mean, do you think it could possibly work if you if you dialed it back? I think that's a different book, and it's yeah. not one that I'm particularly interested in writing. <laughs> no, no, you end up with The Handmaid's Tale, I suppose. You, it it feels like the extremity of this because it's about bodies and it's about sexuality and it's and there's a weird blending of the. There is, a, I say weird in a good way, there is a, a quite unnerving blending of the erotic and the horrific in this as well. And that yeah, was often the stuff really. that I found more extreme than the than the kind of, you know, overt violence. That's interesting. Not because I'm approved, just I'm so, <laughs> I'm so un- unused to it, you know? Yeah, I get it. It's, we live in a very sexless media landscape. It can be uh, alarming or unsettling to encounter really intense sexuality in art. It's something that has mattered to me through my whole career, both as a film critic and as a a writer. I grew up on David Cronenberg. 
He's a longtime influence of mine. He's one of my favorite artists. And his work is incredibly horny. Mm-hmm. And even before I could sort of unpick the thematic underpinnings of, of why and how it's horny, that was really important to me as a weird, horny little teenager. <laughs> I, I remember when I was a little kid, I had a bit about, you know, 13, and I got a TV in my bedroom for the first time. And it was a, there was a, a series of David Cronenberg films being shown. I remember, I remember watching Shivers and Rabid and stuff like that. And I think David Cronenberg was kind of a formative figure in my early sexuality. So it's it's quite strange that I've turned out as vanilla as I have because when you're exposed <laughs> to that at, at a pubescent moment, it is, yeah, like you say, it, it's... It, it, again, it's that thing, isn't it? It's about it's horny and it's awful at the same time. It's very powerful. You know, it 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 gets inside your desires and then it does something magnificent and terrible that really unsettles you and forces you to come into contact with all of these things about yourself and how you see the world, all this discomfort. Well, discomfort's a good word because one of the things that I found discomforting in this novel um, was how often you stressed a desire for the enemy. So Fran and Beth, both at various points in the story, feel a real strong desire for the, the very people who are most responsible for the mistreatment. I don't have any more sophisticated question other than, other than kind of what's that about? Where does that come from? Well, a lot of it comes from my own study of the sexuality of oppressed peoples and the book that comes to mind is Nancy Friday's My Secret Garden, which is a collection of anonymous sexual fantasies, many of which are from survivors of the Holocaust. And many of these women later in their lives would reenact experiences that they had in concentration camps and, and labor camps with guards. Wow. And that, yeah, they they would eroticize those experiences or, or relive them in this safe environment with their lovers. And many of them felt a tremendous amount of guilt about it. Some didn't, but I think that that urge to be protected and loved and even exploited to have your, your responsibilities as a human being taken away by the people with power over you is, is very human and very understandable. When someone has our leash in their hand, part of us starts to feel like a dog and a, a dog wants its master to love it. That's incredibly powerful. Wow. Do you think it's also, I, I get that. I get the erotic appeal of the safety of, of control, I suppose, you know, the safety of, of, of yeah. being given. I get that. Do you think it's also an element that it's the only way to come to terms with horrific things that have happened to you are to safely eroticize them? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I think why I find it so discomforting because, you know, when, when Fran and Beth have these feelings and you care about them so much in this book and you, you want them to be happy and then you see them kind of buying into their own potential subjugation, 
You know, it's it's a, right. it is a discomforting thing to read. This is what I mean about complex. Like there are no relationships in this book. There's no friction between characters that is ever simple. Everything is in flux at all times. Yeah, I think uh, something that was really important to me while I was writing was to not write what I call good victims, people who we feel totally comfortable experiencing their victimhood and their pain and we know exactly where to fall on it and we like them because of it and we we want them to have a better life i think it's much more powerful to look at someone and see them thinking and feeling things that would be considered really unacceptable if said aloud Mm -hmm. and that are taboo and ugly and unpleasant because every victim that i've ever known deals with those feelings you want and fantasize about things that to other people make no sense that are are frightening and that make people angry and confused to hear the experience of victimhood is not clean okay well i'm jumping the gun here because i had had a whole kind of you know um progression for this interview but let's jump in there because you mentioned the key word victimhood which is um in this particular landscape and this particular world, it, it's it's almost um, a term that is not up for grabs because we know who the victims are as readers. But, it, you know, everyone in this book feels like they have a right to be the victim. Absolutely. The men are not really thinking creatures, but you, you could impose a sympathy and a victimhood on them. But these militant radical feminists would argue, wouldn't they, that they are the potential victims far more than Beth and Fran. Absolutely. And I I think that is a driving force behind the way that that TERFs and other transphobes behave. I think there is a a fantasy of victimhood that they ascribe to and that they use to make sense of themselves as human beings. And when other potential, other people potentially trespass or complicate that that form of victimhood, which is it's very sort of bound up in the white supremacist image of the damsel, of the the helpless mm-hmm. woman who is at the mercy of violent forces around her and must be protected. Sort of a, a rallying point for violent fascism throughout history. When someone complicates that symbolic system, that's a tremendous existential threat to these people. You have women who can only understand themselves as victimized, as martyred, suddenly being made to confront the possibility that actually things aren't that simple, that they have authority and agency, that the categories they considered closed are in fact open and porous, that they might have to associate with people who cause a reaction of disgust in them without applying moral significance to that disgust. And those are all very challenging ideas, especially for people who are seldom challenged in that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I read an interview with you with, I think the, I think it's called heat death. I think that the site is called heat death. It was a, a, a great interview um oh thank you yeah that was uh my friend asher albane 
it's a fantastic interview and i i struggled not to kind of steal the questions it was like i read i was like <laughs> shit i've got to come up with other questions now because these are all great um i'll put the, the link to it in the show notes people can find it um but you, you discuss this exact topic in that interview and if you don't mind i'm going to quote you because I have, I have a question and i think it may be my, my misunderstanding but who knows so you have these interesting attitudes towards the notion of victimhood um, when other people, lots of people talk about it in such simplistic terms, you know, um, was you say, quote, when you look at the world and see limitless hostility and yourself as a potential victim in every situation, I think that inevitable result of that is fascism. Existing to divine the ways in which you are a martyr is a terrible way to live. Now, I agree with that philosophy. Um, but I can also see how it could pose problems because you're writing there about these, you know, essentially privileged women who are realizing for the first time that maybe they are not the victim of, of a situation. But do you apply that same attitude to everyone? Should a trans person adopt the same attitude, for example, or do, you know, do some groups have, have more right than others to to focus or you know, or divine their own victimhood. I do firmly believe that none of us should be clinging to our own victimhood to use it as a, a shield and a cudgel. I think that it just leads inescapably to a really unappealing and unpleasant place. Of course, many groups are legitimately persecuted in all encompassing ways. I, I could never speak to the experiences of, of black women in America or, or throughout the Western world, which are so hostile and so all encompassing. I, I will never experience anything like that in my life, but I still, I still think that, when you make victimhood your primary form of identity, it won't lead anywhere good. The reason I asked that question is because it struck me that there's a whole second strain of commentary all about class rather than gender in this book, um, which really kind of starts to interrogate these hierarchies of victimhood. And so there's an entire section of the book that takes place in this secure bunker um, where Fran and Beth are at least safe from immediate risk or, you know, immediate risk of death. Um, <laughs> although there are bad things happening to them that are more, more sociological. Meanwhile, outside, there is this whole refugee camp that is being exploited by those within and that is just open to attack from, you know, rampaging groups of men or from the turf army or from anyone, you know. And, and it seems to me that you were making a point about hierarchies of safety in society there that maybe you know fran and beth are representative of people who are at real risk of of all kinds of things but also as women living in a in a microcosm or, or an allegory of a, of a kind of middle class sanctuary they're not having it quite as bad as the as the refugees on the border yeah absolutely i i meant to sort of provide a backdrop to to contextualize what they're going through because of course especially beth does suffer there and mm -hmm. is eventually put in peril of her life 
But before that, she is benefiting from the exploitation of these people. And that's the situation in which myself and all other Americans who have the the good luck and the privilege to live as we do benefit from. I mean, I'm without getting too depressing about it, we're all wearing clothes made in textile mills by exploited labor. We're all living on land that was stolen from people who husbanded it and rendered it fertile before we were ever here. We're all enjoying all these forms of ongoing oppression as the cost to our way of living. And even when you shrink the world down to a a little bunker in the middle of New Hampshire, I think those things will still be true as long as we keep thinking of the world the same way. I just think it's incredibly fertile ground for this kind of allegory. And there's so much in this book. So like we've got, you know, a perfect framing of gender issues. We've got a a perfect literalization of the kind of refugee crisis and the immigrant crisis and, and, and all of those things. Like, when you were sitting down to write your post-apocalyptic, you know, horror story, did all of these real-world parallels, were they there already or did they kind of come to you in the writing? I would say that they came out of the writing. You know, I'm not laying out all the political issues that I want to address and, and then mapping the book to those. It's sort of the other way around. But it was important right from the beginning to me that Fran comes from the upper middle class and Beth comes from the working poor. I thought that that was a really central part of their dynamic, that Fran expects the world to be good to her and Beth does not. So did you have like any kind of fist pump moments where you're like, oh my God, this is the perfect metaphor for that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I... I did my best. I don't want to slap myself on the back too hard here. Oh, slap away. It's a great book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, I would say that the thing I think about most from the book is uh, the moment where Beth has this realization about Fran and how Fran never expects anything to go wrong. And it's so disappointing to Fran when things do Mm -hmm. go wrong and how this is like a disease of the American middle class that you expect your life to go the way you want it to go. And that's sort of a a way that only an idiot would navigate the world. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't the pandemic shown that in stark relief? Right. You know, just wanting something really means nothing. Yeah. It's the same in the UK. I mean, we basically, as of like next week, we're no longer isolating if you get COVID. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And it's kind of like, Obviously, I, I don't want to sound like one of these people who's kind of like, get back in your bunker. I, I, I'm glad that life is opening up. I'm glad that we're moving on. But like, can, do we have to do it? Can we have at least a little bit of common sense? Do you know what I mean? Like, just because we want the world to be what it is, can we just at least recognize that it may not be? I always think like, if you told somebody, you know, two years ago, last March, March 2020, in two years, you'd be able to live your life pretty much normally. All you've got to do is wear a mask. They'd have been like, give me that deal. These days, it's like, you know, people even do that. It's it's it, the arrogance of the Western world to think we can have things the way we want. It is towering and, and almost unbelievable in its pettiness and stupidity. Yeah. 
So look forward to what I'm already going to call the Boris variant anyway when it arrives on your shore sometime <laughs> next year. Speaking of this kind of literalization, which I keep going back to, because it's just such a cool part of the book that you can just map as you say all of these things to it. And 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 we'll we'll get now to the kind of, you know, the turf stuff. But I was really bowled over by the way this disease allows you to, again, to use the word, literalize the whole debate around female-only spaces and this supposed risk to women from trans women. Um, the book looks back to the early days of the outbreak, and again, I'm going to quote, when you say that XX, the, the, the chromosomes, to be clear, XX slipped into the vernacular as a way for cis women to signal safety to one another, a little shibboleth to ward off the spectre of the wolf in women's clothing. That that was just like, oh, now, you know, this book allows you to really turn that ridiculous debate over safe spaces into a thing where there is a real actual risk to contend with. Yeah, and absolutely, I meant it too. And of course, still within this literalized type of threat are contradictions that these women are completely uninterested in addressing. You don't hear them talking about cis women with hormonal irregularities of whom there are are probably, in fact, certainly more than there are trans women in the world. So in a, a very real sense, they're a bigger threat to themselves than than trans women are to them but that is not ideologically appealing to them so they they want nothing to do with it yeah i hadn't thought about that and and that kind of partially answers my next question um because i was going to say that this could be my first proper misunderstanding i mean i've got this far um but it, it it seems to me that because this disease has no interest in how a character identifies. It doesn't care about gender dysphoria. It doesn't care about anything other than the crude physicality of the body. You've created a world in which those anxieties about trans women are more valid than they are in our real world. Is is that yep. fair to say? Yes. And I, I think that how I intended that was as a commentary on my own anxieties about my experience with testosterone and the anxieties of trans women that I, I, I know and love or have known and loved. We have to live with being seen as, as like secretive and dangerous and repulsive because of our experiences being, being uh, treated as men and because of, the way that our bodies behave and the hormones that they produce. And in literalizing that, I mean, that's, you know, that's at the heart of all horror. You think about something like Stephen King's it. It's not scary because there's a shape-shifting clown. It's scary because the shape-shifting clown is a literalization of neglect and child abuse because there's a, a face you can put to those things. Mm-hmm. And in this case, what I meant to do with it was to render that fear that all trans women have when our estrogen comes in late to the pharmacy and we have to borrow it from friends or when there's some supply chain foul up and and we're left without medication. What if I have to go back? What if 
I'm forcibly detransitioned. There's a real terror to experiencing that. And I wanted to spend some time pressed up against that discomfort. I'm glad I asked because, um, yeah, that was the part that I was worried I was misunderstanding and I, I hadn't obviously considered it from that perspective. So I'm glad I asked. But all, all of this brings us finally to this militant turf army. Um who are, let's face it, the real monsters of the peace, far more than these rapacious men. This is where the yes, real absolutely. thinking monstrosity lives. Um, again, I appreciate that this is a fantasy, and th- this this may be a really dumb question, but it's a fantasy. But do you see there being truth in that prospect of such extremity towards trans people if an opportunity arose that would allow it yeah absolutely i i wrote exactly what i think would have happened or would happen and you don't have to look any farther than the founding texts of sort of turfist thinking i'm talking specifically about janice raymond's the transsexual empire and In the fiction of the book, Janice Raymond is actually alive and involved in this paramilitary turf organization. I mean, she's alive in the real world too, but anyway. (laughs) Um, And there's a, there's a, a now infamous line from the transsexual empire, which reads, I contend that the best solution to the problem of transsexualism is to morally mandate it out of existence. I don't think there's a very benign way to read that. (laughs) Um, And I understand it as sort of a veiled call for soft genocide that you would either subject trans women. The book is, is specifically about transsexual women. You'd either subject us to, re-education camps of some sort or else exterminate us it it really can't mean anything else because how, how else do you contend with the quote-unquote problem that we exist at all i'd never heard of janice raymond she's i'd never come across my, my radar and i read that and i first of all was like that's one of the most abhorrent sentences i've ever read in my life because it's the phrase morally mandate you know, like you say, it's soft genocide. It's there's there's something about the idea of, of, of a moral mandate that it, you know to to put this into moralistic terms is a far crueler thing than to well put it this way: uh, the, you open the book with a with a quote from some unknown troll on I assume Twitter, um, yeah. which is you know a, just a, a horrible ignorant thing that basically says commit suicide now and. The, the the quote about the moral mandate is just so much more upsetting because it comes from a, a position of well pseudo intellectualism as opposed to some guy you know some troll in his in his mother's basement. Um, yeah, and yeah, and I was I was astounded by it. I, I I and then I looked at who she was and I I was like, and she's she's still a tenured professor from what I can see. Yes, she is. I think that. In order to understand Janice Raymond, you have to understand that 
eugenics was invented in the United States and that it has, has flourished here. You have to understand World War II not as a conflict between good and evil, but as a fight between eugenicist empires ripping at each other. Mm-hmm. And we are the eugenicist power that won. And our strength has always been that our eugenics is soft, that we oppress and immiserate people until they are incapable of continuing to live. I mean, look at the way that disabled people are treated in America. You can't have more than a certain amount in your savings and it's minimal without losing your disability benefits. If you get married, you'll likely lose your disability benefits. People will check up on you with your neighbors to make sure that you're not cheating the system for a few hundred dollars somewhere. Mm. We spend more on making poor people miserable than we could possibly ever extract from them. America is a place where if the the powers that be want you dead, they just turn their back on you until starvation does their work for them. And yeah. that's the moral mandate. That's that, that repulsive, polite invocation to, to let a group die through passive and indirect means. Well, you, I couldn't put that better myself. Um, this is what I mean when I when I spoke to you before we started recording, and I kind of said, you know, I am. I didn't realize how ignorant I was of a lot of this stuff until I started reading this book, and then I discovered the existence of Janice Raymond, and in some ways, wish I hadn't. But I I, I do feel it's it's a bit of a sort of slightly twee thing to say this, but I I do feel educated by this book in the way that only I think genre fiction really can do. You know, if like, if I'd have sat down to read some article in the Atlantic, I'd have read it, but I would have intellectually understood it. It would have, you know, in one ear out the other, but by reading kind of hardcore, hard hitting genre fiction that, that puts emotions behind these themes and these issues, I, I do feel like I, I have whatever tiny bit of understanding I can have with my lived experience. I feel like it's been enriched. Um, yeah, to, I mean, to, to the point that I had to laugh at the fate of J.K. Rowling in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was that was one of the the great pleasures of writing it. I could feel the pleasure when you were writing it. I could feel the glee through the page. Um, to be fair. With all the the anger that's clearly behind it and all the fear and all the personal investment in this story, you don't just focus on the the experiences of people on the progressive side of this conflict. You give ample space in the book to a character called Ramona, who is a woman deeply embedded in this turf militia. And that surprised me, actually, because I expected Manhunt to be far less empathetic than it was. And you are quite empathetic and quite open to understanding why her character may think the way she does. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of women like Ramona. Um, I, I have met and known them in my own time. I've had friends like her. I think there's a kind of moral laziness that is very appealing to a lot of people. 
And that's, that's where I would position her. She's someone who is morally lazy. The world that she exists in is one that she does not want to challenge. It's one where she doesn't want to be out of step with the people around her. And so she does these really appalling, unthinkable things and just sort of rationalizes it away. Yeah, she's she's a good soldier, isn't she, essentially? And yeah, it's, um, I, I said this in an interview the other day, but she is inspired in part by a quote that I'll always remember about Hermann Goering, um, Supreme Commander of, of Hitler's Luftwaffe during World War II. And this was a quote specifically about his performance in World War I and his sort of legendary bravery and prowess on the battlefield. And the historian writing said that he had the kind of meaningless physical courage that all moral cowards do. Hmm. That's a great quote. And yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's, it's a willingness to do anything in order to avoid having to think about yourself. Yeah. I'd rather be shot than think. And, and as I say, she's a good soldier. And we've talked about Goering. We've talked about fascism. You know, we, we've we've tiptoed around the edges of saying this is a, a, you know, a direct comparison to Nazism. Um, but, but that reaches its head in these scenes that I, I found devastating to read. Um, the, these scenes were of essentially anonymous, unthinking executions of well people who are basically not part of the of the gender binary you know it's it's across the whole spectrum people who are just just and they're, they're horrible scenes and i did wonder what was it like to write those scenes because it's a very different thing to to sit down at a computer i imagine and write a story about the assassination the the, the extermination of people purely for being specifically who they are and who you are what, what was it like on a daily basis to confront those scenes and write them? Well, I suppose the thing that I would, I would compare it to most readily is the experience of reading the news and seeing that once again in your home state, whether or not you are a full human being with all the rights that entails is once again up for a vote or some other state is voting about whether or not children who are like you were when you were younger are going to be allowed to participate in sports Mm -hmm. or are going to be allowed to use certain bathrooms. It's the experience of waking up every day and not quite being sure if you still have the rights you went to bed with of existing in that tenuous legal space where you have to constantly see yourself and your loved ones debated as though you weren't people, as though you were um, a problem to be solved. And so writing these scenes, especially the, the, the death squad scene midway through the book was deeply unpleasant for me. I did not enjoy it. I found it very challenging. It took me a while, mm. but it's also not an experience I'm unfamiliar with. It's, it's just a concretization of the way that trans women are, are driven to suicide or 
beaten to death by people who have been affected by these systems of of anti-trans propaganda and rhetorical violence. I mean, yeah, they are just, I mean, the distressing scenes to read, like quite specifically distressing scenes on a very human level, as opposed to a scary supernatural level. They are, yeah, distressing is the word. Um, I can't imagine what most people like to write them from, from an insider perspective. But with all of that said, the feeling I've taken from the book, what really impressed me, aside from its ingenuity, is its emotional agility. Because the story begins as a very cynical, very vicious, very hopeless tale. Because um, these two characters who we're following are very, you know, conflicted issues with each other. You know, there's there's no safe landing. And then it it, it morphs, not gently, but it, it, it morphs into something much more tender. And I wonder, was that always your intent to take us on that emotional journey? Or did your own feelings creep in? as the story progressed. It was my intent to build to this ending that was more about how I understand queer community and queer togetherness. But originally the the book did have an even bleaker ending, which I, I rewrote because I, I felt that it was beyond being pointed and into the realm of, of just sort of literary brutality. <laughs> okay. And I'm not a great believer in the idea that a book needs to give you a vision of the future or impart hope to your heart or heal you or whatever. I, I think that's generally a fairly silly idea. A, a book is something you read and have feelings about and then you put aside or maybe you come back to it. And it's, it's, it's not a terribly important thing. It's it's work that someone did that you enjoy. It's, it's the same as a movie. Um, but I do think that seeing trans people together and that seeing them form families and towns and things like that, I think there is a tremendous amount of emotional power in it because it's so rarely glimpsed. I've rarely read a novel that ends with such cinematic scope and and i wonder considering its topic and its extremity do you ever expect to see an adaptation of this would you want to well i i can't lie there's a, a excitable 13 year old girl in me who would probably have an aneurysm if someone adapted her story <laughs> Um, I think that would be very thrilling in a lot of ways. And of course, I'm a, a lifelong cinephile. I love movies. I love television. I think that there are some very, very significant challenges in producing an adaptation of Manhunt that I, I think would be faithful to the spirit of it. I'm, I'm not so much concerned with the story and the like you know exactly recreating every beat of the book i think an adaptation should be an adaptation it should do its own thing but i think it would be tremendously difficult to convince the kind of people who work in film and television to cast people who look like the people in manhunt <laughs> um 
which is a book that is specifically about desirability and undesirability and fatness and disability and non-whiteness. I still hope to see it. I, oh, I, I can't I lie. My... I, would, I would be thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I, I have my worries that people will be afraid to touch it, but Christ, it would make a good film. It would make a great TV series. You know what I mean? Like If HBO had the guts to take this on, it would set the world oh, on I'd, fire. I'd love to see an yeah. eight or ten episode adaptation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know you're a Game of Thrones fan, aren't you, in a big way? Yes, I am. I've seen you tweeting about that, and I it sounds daft, but there is a whole kind of Battle of the Bastards vibe at the end of this book. It's a very similar oh, kind of fist pump sort of moment in many ways. Oh, I was I I love that episode. I'm I'm sure it was on my mind mm. um, when I was writing. I was also thinking about the Battle of Blackwater Bay from yeah. yes George yeah. Martin's second book yeah. and and the television adaptation of it. Yeah, writing uh writing action is is not something that comes very naturally to me. So I I tend to revisit favorites of mine huh. in order to to get kind of a grip on how to pace things. Well, speaking of which, we always close these conversations by asking uh, if you could recommend a novel for my listeners. So when we're on the topic of other people's work, do you have a book that you think people should read and, and why? Absolutely. I'd love to recommend that your listeners pick up Tell Me I'm Worthless by Alison Rumfit, a UK-based author. If you enjoyed Manhunt or are interested in that kind of brutal, intense fiction Tell Me I'm Worthless is very much in that vein. It deals with turfs. It deals with violence against trans people. It deals with love and togetherness and sex and alienation. And it's also one of the greatest haunted house stories I've ever read. It makes the haunted house into this sort of metaphor for empire and colonialism and all of its pettiest little daily manifestations and it is so brutal and so frightening i'm on it i um last last week i interviewed a writer called leon craig and and she writes kind of very slippery queer fiction um short stories and she also recommended tell me i'm worthless so that's two for two um and oh, fantastic. i've heard nothing but glowing praise i've actually emailed allison saying, please come and talk to me, but I've yet to hear back from her. But yeah, watch this space, I guess. It sounds great. Yeah, it's a hell of a book. My last question, and who knows where this could go, but what truly scares you? I would say that the thing I'm most afraid of in life, I am terrified of getting stuck underground. Terrified of it. <laughs> I hate caves. I hate tunnels. I hate to think about going underground, mine shafts, any of it. You show me the opening of a mine shaft and my hair stands on end. I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's awful. It's just awful. The idea of being so far from air and sun and the ability to move around freely is just, it's literally suffocating. Well, The Descent is my all-time favorite horror movie. Oh. Oh, it's so good. And the worst, most frightening part is the cave-in at the beginning. Yes, it is. It is. There's um, quite close to where I live. There's um, a town called Castleton, which famously has these caves you can explore. Um, and and every Halloween, they, they show the descent on a screen oh. inside the cave. No! 
Yeah, and I, I haven't had the guts to go and watch it yet because I'm, I'm a bit claustrophobic. Um, but yeah, I am with you on that one, very much so. Actually, I, I had an author on the show, he's called Ali Wilkes, who wrote a novel, a historical polar horror novel called All the White Spaces. It's out in the States in March. Uh, and it, it it features a trans protagonist. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, I'm planning on picking it up. Very different to your pick. It was actually Ali who recommended that I had to read Manhunt. So I'm kind of doing a bit of a back yeah. and forth here. Um, but yeah, she's going to come back on the show for a Patreon special talking about weird things that have happened in caves. So yeah, this is all coming together in a lovely Gordian knot. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well... On that note, I think we'll leave it, but I'm, I'm saying this now out loud, listeners, as, as loud as I can. If you want to know what horror can do in the contemporary era, you have to read Manhunt. It's as simple as that. And Gretchen Felker Martin, thank you for talking scared. Oh, it's, it's, it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Okay, let's cut straight to the chase. Manhunt is a fantastic book. There's no doubt of that. It packs in so much commentary, so much philosophy and political allegory, and and still so much story, all without ever sounding strident or polemical. And I sang its praises plenty in the interview, so there's no need to overly belabour the point here. It, It does feel like a watershed moment in horror, though, at least in terms of, as I say, allegory, and social perspective. Some people may find it too challenging, too provocative, too extreme, or or simply too gross, but it feels like a book that, regardless of that, everyone should read. After all, we are a horror community. We've spent years reading about the rape, abuse, and mistreatment of women. Surely we can handle some ball-biting for a change. I'd half expected this conversation to be a battle because Gretchen is so demonstrably not here for your shit on social media. She even took me down once, though I thought it was best not to remind her of that. Um, So I was taken a little bit aback by how open Gretchen was to some of my questions, especially the ones concerning victimhood, because that felt like shaky ground, especially when someone from my demographic is asking the question. Those comments, though, about victimhood... It'd be easy to read them or hear them and think that they are unsympathetic to people's plight. And I think they could be misconstrued as the old neoliberal idea that people should just rise above, which is wholly unrealistic and and downright cruel in today's mismanaged, imbalanced world. That's clearly not what Gretchen meant, though, nor is it what I think myself. I just think that the quote from the Heat Death interview about how existing to divine the ways in which you are a martyr being a terrible way to live, that speaks to me as as such a wholly positive reconfiguring of identity politics, a way to start from a better, more affirmative place, and, and by Christ does Manhunt put that into operation. But what the hell do I know? I mean, how many times do I have to repeat cis, white, British male before it's clear I've got no idea of what I'm talking about. I mean, God knows if what I'm saying makes sense or if it's even worth saying. Generally, I'm just blundering through conversations like these, trying not to make an arse of myself. It's tricky, actually, because just as horror demands we confront controversial, provocative ideas, I'm also aware how easy it is to say the wrong thing, a hurtful thing, and I spent my life saying the wrong things. But we do our best, don't we? 
I'm always open for a conversation with any listener on anything that gets said on this show. This week is no different. In fact, if it is different, it's only because there's more than ever to talk about. You can get in touch easily. It's TalkScaredPod on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Or email direct to TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Patreon remains the best way to support the show and to get some sweet bonus content. The bonus stuff with Thomas Uderhuville, S.A. Barnes and Christy Demista just went live. So you can access that and loads more for just a few dollars, all of which helps keep this show on the road. And you can do that via the link in the show notes or by visiting patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. And a big thanks to some more recent subscribers, Hayden, Sarah, Victoria and Kai. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy the bonus stuff and I hope you realise what a difference your generosity makes. Okay, well, we got through this by the skin of our scrotums, so onward we go. I'm back next week with a groundbreaking, high-flying and all-points-in-between voice of indie horror, Tyler Jones. And trust me, you want to listen now before he gets far too big to talk to the likes of me. But until then, fight the power. Wear whatever you want to prom. Be kind and be brave. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>